This is Archive Atlanta, episode 119, City Hall. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're talking about the history of Atlanta City Hall. Not just the Art Deco masterpiece you can still see today, but the places that no longer exist. Where they were, how we got them, and what their fate was. And before you think this will be boring, our current city hall, built in 1930, brought forth something called the Atlanta Graft Ring, an epic corruption scandal that brought down a mayor and won a Pulitzer Prize. Let's start with Atlanta's earliest beginnings. For a quick refresher, a railroad engineer was sent to Georgia, and in December of 1836, the Western and Atlantic Railroad Terminus was approved. In 1845, we're an official city called Marthasville, but there's only like 20 families living here. And while cityhood and government seemed like a great idea, they weren't too keen on actually paying taxes. By 1847, our name was changed to Atlanta, and regular city council meetings and some city services had been established. Rumblings of building a city hall can be heard all the way back to 1851. Civic leaders had been meeting in a makeshift space that is not really identified, but by a February of 1853 council meeting, the plans for a permanent home begin to take place. The Finance Committee did not want to sell bonds. They did not think it would be successful or the right method. And I'm going to take a second to explain bonds because I'm going to talk about them a lot during this episode. And also, I don't know about you, but I didn't really understand the concept. So municipal bonds are debt securities issued by a city, a town, etc., where they borrow money from bond purchasers that is due back to be paid at some time. And the city of Atlanta used and still uses bonds to fund the constructions of schools, buildings, and of course, City Hall. So in 1851, they did not want to do bonds. And instead, they proposed that the current mayor personally borrow $10,000 to construct a building and then give it back and the land to the city as security. An inquiry was recorded in the council meeting notes about the cost of Peter's Reserve, which is today where the state capital sits. Richard Peters, who I talked about in episode 43, had purchased this four-acre site from Samuel Mitchell in 1847 for $225. In 1853, he was selling it for $5,000, and the city council agreed to pay. So now that they have the land, the work starts on the building in September of that year. They hope to get the walls up before the cold weather arrived. Plans were drawn by architect Columbus Hughes, who was a New Yorker living in Atlanta at this time. When it opened on October 17, 1854, it was a two-story, federal-style brick building with an additional two-story cupola. The city celebrated with a fancy dress ball. Fulton County had just been created the year prior out of the western half of DeKalb County, and so without a space to meet, the new Atlanta City Hall was used by the county for administrative offices as well as a courthouse. It was also in high demand by non-government groups, so the Atlanta Medical College used it with promises that their classes would not disrupt official government business, and Second Baptist Church used it as its earliest meeting space. During the Civil War, the building and the site were used as campgrounds by the Union Army, and then post-war, the capital of Georgia was moved from Milledgeville to Atlanta, that was about 1868, and without a permanent home, the state capital functioned out of our first city hall building until they built their own. So in 1884, this new home of their own is being built. And yes, that is the state capital that you can still see today. And so City Hall was being demolished, and the mayor, city council, and other offices had to move to their second home. And that was the first floor of the Chamber of Commerce building. 
Atlanta's chamber was reorganized in 1871, and it had its own four-story building at the northeast corner of Pryor and today's Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. It was described as being made of one million bricks, and based on the time period, I'm pretty sure it was convict labor Chattahoochee brick. So City Hall operated out of this building until 1911, but it was 1910 that discussions began about another move. The first thing you have to know is that in 1910, Atlanta was already building their new U.S. Post Office and Customs House, which still stands today at 76 Forsyth Street. And so Mayor Robert Maddox sees an opportunity here. The city can use the soon-to-be-old Post Office and Customs House as their city hall. That building had been built in 1878-ish. It was in the fairly popular section of downtown. It was huge and beautiful. It was, I'm going to put pictures on social media, it was a stunning building took up an entire city block. It was bounded by Marietta, Fairley, Walton, and Forsyth Streets. Now, the city had purchased the building they were in from the Chamber of Commerce 15 years prior, so they paid about $60,000 for it, and then in 1910, they still owed $30,000. And while they had some potential buyers, there were two issues to sort out. One, federal approval was needed to purchase the former post office, and two, funds with which to purchase. This was Mayor Maddox's pet project. He took several trips to Washington, D.C. to petition the legislators to release the property back to Atlanta. He goes on and on about how operating in the Chamber of Commerce has lost Atlanta prestige. It just wasn't acceptable anymore. So when federal lawmakers in D.C. approved the Senate appropriation bill that allows that purchase, he turned his attention to finding funds, which he knew full well did not exist. Atlanta's government was close to broke. So he fronts his own cash, $70,000 to be exact, with a 5% interest rate due back to be paid in three years. The city ended up selling the Chamber of Commerce building for about $67,000, so they immediately paid a portion to the mayor, and then they repaid over the next two years. They did need to keep some cash on hand, though, for the remodel. Cost estimates for that reached $15,000 to $20,000, and they hired architect A. Tenike Brown to completely transform the building. Walls were moved, doors were closed, doors were open. The space was unrecognizable to those who had entered before 1911. The first floor had the offices of the waterworks, tax assessor, city marshal, clerk of the council, and the street improvement collector. The second floor had the chief of construction and the city controller. The third floor had the mayor's reception room and private office, the health inspector, and the building inspector. And the fourth floor, which was formerly the circuit courtroom, was now city hall chambers. The fifth floor was a half-story and had the offices of the Parks Department and the Board of Education. Side note, I love that they shoved these two departments in basically an attic. Kind of goes to show you how important they thought they were. The basement had both white and quote-unquote colored bathrooms. A few funny stories from this building that I came across. So construction was completed by May of 1911. But throughout this entire process, no one remembered to ask Congress to transfer the land rights back to Atlanta. Just like the Capitol building land is not City of Atlanta property today, the former post office was exactly the same way. So council's attorney realized that by law, they could not meet and legislate in this space because it wasn't legal to do so. While they waited, the council met in the Taft Hall inside the city auditorium. By June, the whole thing had been settled and the big move took place. In July, the first city hall meeting happened on the fourth floor, and the attendees shared that the acoustics were absolutely terrible. They had to bring in heavy mats to be put in the floor and wires thrown across the ceiling to catch some of the sound. 
The second fun story is that in 1912, there was a bit of a telephone drama. So apparently spurred by a request for more telephones, someone did an internal audit and found that phones were shoved in every corner of this building, costing City Hall more than what the state capitol paid in phone service and any large building in Atlanta was paying less than City Hall. In January of 1925, Mayor Walter Sims addressed the city council and put forth the idea that the city should consolidate departments and build a new municipal building with the funds from selling these other properties. So what you have to know here is that at this time, City Hall was in that former post office, but the police barracks and the fire headquarters were in different locations. The idea is that by selling City Hall, by selling the police barracks, and by selling fire engine house number one and number four, there would be no need to sell bonds. Sound familiar? And Atlanta could erect a new 20-story structure. Now, that was later brought down to 10 stories, but we'll get to that. Those architectural plans come from, of course, A. Tenike Brown. His plan was that the city could easily rent the floors they didn't use immediately and then expand as needed. Now, council's like, listen, 20 floors, way too much, let's bring it down, and so he changed his plan to 10. Unsurprisingly, it took only six months for the council to realize they were not going to fund anything without a bond issue. And so by July, a $2 million bond initiative was approved. When time came to vote in September, the city strategically announced how the new building would only use Atlanta laborers, aka please vote for our new bond referendum. But it didn't quite work. The measure failed. An $8 million bond did pass the following year and $1 million of that was allocated for Atlanta's 4th City Hall. Initial plans involved building on the site of the Fulton County Courthouse, which needed to be released by the state for purchase, but by 1927, City Hall had its site set on the former girls' high school. Quick history of this piece of land that City Hall sits on. So I'm almost positive that this was part of the landlot of Hardy Ivy, who was the first white landowner in what is today the center of Atlanta. But by 1859, it was owned by Richard Lyon. He sold it to John Neal for $2,000, but when the Civil War started in 1861, Neal sold it and his home back to Lyon while he fled the city. General Sherman used this house as headquarters during the war, and afterward it was leased to Girls High, who used it for almost 50 years. By the way, I have a whole episode 14 about Girls High. So this house actually stood until it was demolished for City Hall. I think it was 1928. In 1927, a new architect was named for the project, G. Lloyd Preacher. So I don't know what happened to Brown. He did die 10 years after this, but he was also working up until his death. So it's not like he retired. And Preacher's design looked almost identical to Brown's. It was like 90% similar. I feel like there's some history drama there I haven't discovered yet. I'm sure architects have drama, just like anybody else. Um, Preacher was definitely qualified. He was more than qualified. At this point in his career, he was the city's official school architect. He was president of the Architectural Examining Board. And he was practicing architecture in almost every single state. Formal construction began August 1st, 1928, and planned to be finished by the end of the year. All city departments except fire and police were to be housed here. Funny how that went, right? By June, the electrical wire drama begins. To start, Preacher and his electrical engineer both recommended Oconite cable, or its equivalent, to be used. But there was a revision list that had somehow made its way through committee, through general counsel, and got signed by the mayor, and no one seems to know its author or its origin. What it said was that lower grade wiring could be used, and using this lesser than ideal cable was going to save $4,000. Not to give away the ending here, but obviously somebody somewhere was trying to skim some money off the top. 
and not to go too far off on a tangent here, but I just finished rewatching The Nick, which is now on HBO. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. And it's about the Knickerbocker Hospital from the 1900s in New York City. And their administrator is this terrible man who skims money off of everything in the hospital. So as I'm doing this research, I just couldn't do it without this full visual of what this may have been like in real life. Mayor Ragsdale goes public, saying that when he signed the change order, he expected the city to get the $4,000 rebate. I mean, that was a difference in cost, but no one's seen it. The heat was starting to come down on Councilman Howard McCutcheon, who was chairman of the City Hall Committee. And to add to the fray, there was no permit on file for the electrician who installed this inferior wiring. And then it becomes a big he said, she said. So some city council members are like, oh yeah, I saw that permit. And some city council members are like, no, I've never seen a permit. There is no permit. By October, the wiring is ordered to be pulled out. By November, 4th Ward Alderman Ben Hewitt says that he heard that payment of $3,500 was asked for in order to approve electrical wiring. So somebody asked for money to approve this under the table. Shortly thereafter, Clark Howell, president of the Atlanta Constitution, wrote an editorial demanding an investigation. This was, to date, the longest and most exhaustive case that Solicitor General John Boykin had ever worked on. He said it could take six months just to scratch the surface, and that we were looking at a chain of secret handshake deals done years before with men that are no longer even holding office. In the meantime, they're still building a building that is due to be completed by January of 1930, and that's not going to happen. As if the graft ring wasn't enough, there were delays for equipment and furniture. Since it was all made to order, it would not be ready for January. And there was also a standoff between the mayor who believed we should just bring the old furniture over from our current office, and two members of city council who insisted on new things. Mayor Ragsdale attempted to force a move by February 1st, um, but construction wasn't even ready. It wasn't going to be ready till February 15th. It would not be until February 25th, 1930, that city departments had their first official day in the new building. The first money received was about $4 when I.C. Edwards from 817 Ponce de Leon paid his water bill. The first building permit was taken out by T.K. Wyndham for his house on East Pelham Road. Just need to point out this weird collision of coincidence here. I have posted about that house a few weeks ago on social media, and I had no idea that it was that first permit pulled. The first birth recorded was a daughter to the Croft family of Reinhardt Street, and the first death certificate was from Mrs. Annie Harris of Harris Street. During these entire first few months of the year, the graft ring investigation continued on. Lasting 17 months, there was more than 1,000 witnesses called. There were 26 indictments handed out and 15 people deemed guilty. Of those 15, seven of them received prison sentences. It brought down the mayoral career of Isaac Ragsdale, and he did not run for re-election. Solicitor Boykin became this kind of anti-corruption hero, and he brought down the numbers game just a few years later, which I'm working on an episode about. The Atlanta Constitution and its owner won the 1931 Pulitzer Prize for Howell's series exposing the graft ring. So there you have it, the history of Atlanta City Hall, its previous iterations, and the beautiful Gothic Art Deco structure that still stands today. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review. You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.